taking your time to speak to us. Um, it's like, I don't know, we, we last spoke like three, three years ago, the end of four years ago. It's like a blink of an eye, quite honestly. Yeah. <laughs> time flies by really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was 20, 2019, I swear I remember. That's like four years. Lot has changed yeah. the world. Yeah. Uh, so just like, how was COVID like, <laughs> like for you? Like you were in the US or you were in Kenya? Uh, I was in Kenya, but it worked out well because one of the side effects of COVID was people getting healthier. And because mm -hmm. gyms were closed, running became um, the go-to activity. So we were one of the, the few companies that actually benefited a lot from COVID because the industry kind of just went up. Um, but other than that, a couple of months later, we had a we we got hit by supply shortages, and so that you know we ended up catching up with everybody else. But uh, twenty twenty, we had a good year. Cool. Actually, since COVID started, I also because. So here in Singapore, we were all locked, like, as in like, it was difficult to like, kind of go, there were a lot of uh, restrictions uh, around, mm -hmm. like, you could go to places. So I took up like walking in a big way. So like progressively every year I've been walking like two and a half, 3000, like up to like three, three and 3.2. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, That's fantastic. Yeah, so, so you see, you still need good walking shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, there was a time where I, genuinely um, wanted to kind of uh, buy Enda shoes uh, and uh, I don't know like I ended up buying something else so like but surely in the future yes. No it's fine our, our mantra is as long as people are keeping active and moving you know that benefits us whether it's that benefits the industry whether it's us or it's uh, somebody you know another competitor ideally um you kind of just want to have more people moving and working up and about because especially now because of the pandemic we can end up being seated a whole day or you're just you know everybody everything happens at your desk and so it's so easy to lose sight of the need to be active yes 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 so cool like uh so yeah so uh a lot has happened since then like so we called mm. our uh, company to like kind of provide brands to build digital storefronts so people essentially can build their online plat like stores on our platform and now we've got like brands in over 80 countries using us um and so there's a lot of people who follow what we publish uh, there is a lot of uh, content we write and uh, one of the key things that like really inspires us like we want everybody selling online to really make money uh, because not everybody makes money online. It's like contrary. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that is true. So, so we are very passionate about like helping people make real money online. And uh, what we try and do is we uh, we try to analyze what people are doing, and then we try to like kind of publish like analysis around it. And in though in that uh, like sequence like eventually now we reached a stage where we said okay let us also start talking to people who are uh, building their businesses predominantly online um, mm -hmm. and uh, learn from their experiences and like share those experiences with the wider audience um, so that they could like kind of i mean yeah there are many ways to succeed but there are some things that people should not be doing like those mistakes so at least they can learn from other people's mistakes um so that's the Absolutely. idea so that's 
the idea of this chat um, to kind of um, kind of walk through your journey so far in building Enda and uh, what you've done well, what you've not done so well, uh, what you learned along the way. So yeah, just a casual chat. Let's see where it goes. Um, and hopefully people can benefit from this chat. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to that. I'm always for anything that helps people because I got into this industry without any digital background. So uh, anything that can help the next entrepreneur, I'm, I'm definitely for it. Yeah, and I think uh, for me, like uh, it's like a couple of things, like what I remember, like uh, the reason even the first time I reached out to you um, was that because a, I grew up in like Tanzania. Like I was, I, I stayed there. Like I was since this, I was like forty days, and my parents moved there. And like I stayed in Nairobi for like, um, like my parents. Like I think my dad worked there for like a couple of years. So, mm -hmm. so I was there for like fifteen years. So there is this thing about like, uh, uh, I think I have seen Africa. I have, mm -hmm. seen, uh, I have seen. I've lived there and. There is a lot of lot that people don't understand about Africa, <laughs> like you know, yeah. the outside. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. And the second thing is like, as well, I remember you also like kind of before doing Enda, you worked with United Nations. And, yeah. And I was uh, also working with United Nations before I started Conigal. So now. Uh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I didn't yeah. know that. So, yeah. So I I kind of come from that uh, mindset where like generally what you do should help people like and mm -hmm. then if you can build a business then you can help even more so yeah. uh, like i'm very fascinated about enda's journey uh, and uh, how you've gone about it but for those who don't um, uh, know about enda and what you do i mean if you could introduce yourself and like this like like what what does enda do why, yeah. why, why you exist yeah yeah, great. So I'll kind of just do an overall intro. My name is Nava and um, I found I co-founded a company called Enda. Enda is actually a Swahili word. It means go. Um, it's a word that you'll hear a lot when, you know, people are talking with regard to movement. And it's also a word you'll hear a lot when people are supporting their teams and they're, you know, kind of like standing on their feet, uh, supporting them. It's that one word you'll hear everybody shouting like Enda, Enda, you know, like cheering their team on. So that's how we decided to name the company. It is inspired by um, Kenyan athletes who are globally renowned for their running uh, expertise and skills. And the idea behind it was really looking at the industry and saying it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Kenya has so much poverty and these athletes come from a place of so much poverty, yet they only participate from a marketing perspective. What if we actually participated from a production perspective and kind of, you know, got skin in the game? and allowed some of those benefits to trickle back to Kenya. Uh, we are talking about, you know, Kenya right now is a net importer. And, you know, when I was looking at it, I was thinking, how do you change a country to also start exporting more, taking advantage of what it's built? If you look at uh, countries like Germany, they have really, Germany and Italy have really taken their respective reputations in um, engineering and fashion respectively and turned it into an industry, but not so much for Kenya, so why not? And so that was the original inspiration, um, coming together with Kenyan athletes and saying, guys, we can actually make shoes that uh, runners around the world can not only use, but gain inspiration from. And that's how Enda started. 
we started as uh, through a crowdfunding uh, campaign on Kickstarter, and that was instrumental for us starting off as a direct-to-consumer company. It wasn't originally our plan because usually the running shoe industry you sell through um, dedicated um, retailers that are run specialty. They just focus on run specialty. But since we didn't have a product ready and since we needed the money to be able to start the business, we went through crowdfunding. And by virtue of that, we became a D2C exporter company from the word go. So it was just the way we chose to fundraise, but that wasn't really a choice. It was based on other limitations and crowdfunding ended up being the thing that worked out. Since then, we have remained a primarily direct to consumer brand. We, um, my, the biggest share of our market is the United States. We do sell a bit in Europe, but it's like 80, 85% of our market is in the US um, and then 5% in Africa and then the rest is in Europe and kind of like expanding. And um, yeah, so, you know, selling through online platforms has been the way we've done it. And as I said, it wasn't necessarily a choice. We found ourselves there and therefore we had to really develop strategies like, you know, email marketing, ads, and all that kind of stuff uh, to be able to continue servicing our customers. This is so cool. There's so much to talk about. Like, I'm like already like so excited about it. So just like before we kind of go deeper into like your journey, like selling direct to consumer. So mm -hmm. You said that Enda started off as from, like basically you raised money to start Enda via Kickstarter campaign. Yes. Uh, yes. Now, now this is uh, super interesting. So, so how, how did this journey happen from you working in the United Nations to running a Kickstarter campaign? I mean, <laughs> how did this? Uh, so I had started and uh, surprisingly the same time that I started, uh, that I kind of started at the UN, which was in 2015. But back then it was something, it was a project, it was like a passion project because I, drew, I was very interested in sports. I had already done a tennis academy before that, which didn't work out. And so I was in that phase where business aid didn't work out. I still see potential in this industry. What can I do with lessons from that failed business? And so that was the point where I was now getting into the UN as well. So I was thinking about these things as I'm working and thinking, okay, what if I do this and what if I do that? And so the thought of making running shoes kind of like happened. And so I was working and I was working on this project simultaneously. And then it reached a certain point where uh, the, the project became a company. It became, um, you know, time consuming. And I found myself in a position where I was working two jobs. <laughs> I'm finishing my day job, I come home, I start my evening job and both were very, very demanding. And so, that's the point also, I was kind of like, I had two young kids and I was just thinking something had to give. There was just too much uh, of time that was required. And so the decision was, you know, should I, which, which path should I pursue? Should I continue to my career, which is going pretty well, or should I focus on the business? And, you know, talking to different mentors, I think, and I agreed with them, the, the perspective was you can always find another job you might not always be able to grow a company or a business the way you've grown it. So go do the business. If it doesn't work out, you can always find another job. And I thought that that made sense because I've done other businesses before. And that's how I just decided to leave um, the UN and decided to now become full-time um, and, that, and that's how it's been since then. Okay, so you, so you have a job with the UN. Um, mm -hmm. 
you have three young children and two, but yeah <laughs> two two young mm-hmm. children and uh, essentially three like enda is your third child so that is true <laughs> it was very demanding <laughs> so yeah so you and then you basically people tell you that oh go live your life quit your mm-hmm. job and do a yeah. like that's and then you do this pretty cool so how did this kickstarter thing happen so what like you just like you just like for you it was the only way to like uh, only way to raise money at that point in mm-hmm. time so you just did it yeah. or or was it a related so decision um this industry basically requires you to have money not just for creating product but for marketing as well and so i had tried the traditional way of you know seeking finance for financial institutions of course they were like it's a startup you know and especially in africa they're like nope <laughs> no thanks you know they want to have like a real asset and then the next question was okay do i have a, an asset under my name that i can use as collateral for this i didn't have uh, and same for my business partner that time and then the bigger question was okay what if we go to development finance institutions this might sound interesting to them but i felt like i think there was actually a shoe project that the world bank did in tanzania that didn't work out and so everyone was like a little bit wary of would this work would it not but coincidentally it didn't work in tanzania because the locals weren't involved it was like a world bank project you know and i'm trying to kind of say yeah but this is different because <laughs> this time you actually have locals who are saying we want to do this but it also felt like um there's a lot of skepticism in the sense of would this be possible to be able to do it we did have some guys who were interested in but their product offering was also credit uh, in terms of loans and it was in millions of dollars and we didn't want to start the company that way and so as a last resort we were like what other option is there and crowdfunding was the only option that remained and we said okay let's make the most of it and that's how we decided to do crowdfunding so um like any insight or like the most important thing that anybody trying to do a kickstarter campaign should uh focus on for a successful outcome mhm i'd say it takes a lot of planning i don't think kickstarter is something that you just wake up and do for us it takes we did two campaigns for our first and second few days like around 4 to 6 months just to kind of like do the planning and uh, so planning is essential and then also how you present the product you know you can just do images or videos uh people respond more to videos nowadays as the algorithms show and so uh, you kind of want to set a budget and time to develop your story and do it in a video format and then the other thing is traffic to your campaign you want to have traffic very early on because the snowball effect on kickstarter is very real you know people want to look at what's trending and then kickstarter itself will profile your campaign if it's doing really well and so you kind of have to get to a point where you have a you have a solid mass that you can count on and they have confirmed that they will support you uh, possibly with some commitment of saying this is how much to give you an es- estimate of what you would need and that will provide the initial traffic and that traffic once it builds it comes with other people and it comes with media as well because you know um this newspaper have to report on something so that's one way to kind of look at it and then the most important thing is conversion it's not just about how many people are coming in it's how many people are actually you know putting money uh, where their mouth is and saying we want to support this and so conversion is just you know what incentives are you creating for the person who is coming in 
to part with their money or to see value in what you're offering. Yeah, so I'd say the preparation and the traffic and then the conversion, um, that is essentially the success for Kickstarter. Okay, so just to like kind of summarize for our audience. So mm -hmm. for you, the three most important things like for running a successful Kickstarter campaign is A, you need to uh, plan out your like campaign in advance like and by planning uh, what you mean is how you're going to present the product who are going to be your initial supporters and uh, how are you going to get that initial traffic so that then if when it starts trending then it also kind of acts as a lead magnet to capture attention from media which then kind of helps to blow up the campaign uh, yes just just curious and then that, conversion yeah okay conversion yes yes so for conversion is what you're giving in return exactly so so uh for example for in your case what was the campaign like what were you so you were offering shoes or what like yes we were offering products because that was the business we were uh but there were some things where we, it wasn't necessarily products it was just like a thank you email or like a honorary mention on our website uh things like that so there are different ways because you want to capture both the smallest and biggest uh people that you want and then you start with the small bits and then you give discounts. So the more money you give, the bigger discount you give on products. And we had bigger uh, amounts where, you know, someone was like $5,000, you could come to Kenya, run with the athletes and do all these things. And so you prepare different packages that will appeal to the people who are coming to you. But as much as possible, remember you're running a business. So you want to make sure your product is more um, out there. Cool. Cool. Just curious. So, uh, when you ran this campaign, did uh, any athlete from Kenya like kind of uh, feature in your like uh, ad, like like promotion materials uh, stuff? Mm -hmm. like? Yeah. The beauty of Kenya, it has so many, many, many great athletes that it actually works against them because the world gets to only see a few who are at the top of the pyramid. But yes, we did work with athletes who are part of the video. They were the main stars of the video. And because it's all about them, again, it was communicating what the essence of this company is about, which was working with athletes to create products for you as a runner or you as a person. So amazing. Also, actually, I was uh, so uh, like, I, I mean, I do this all the time. So I go and like kind of research on brands, like, and so Enda is something I've been following for some time now. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I see that uh, Enda has been very successful in like kind of, so like in terms of like online presence and marketing. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about like, uh, so we, we talk about this concept called product led SEO. Uh, so mm -hmm. the, like when you you place your product and then you essentially for those like, who don't uh, know is essentially like to place your product as as a solution to a problem and like and you do it in a way which is not like pushy uh, or marketing mm -hmm. like genuine right it's, it's like a genuine solution to a problem so what we observe is that there is a and uh, has been successful in like kind of getting like a lot of like media mentions mm -hmm. uh, so is this something that you genuinely focus on or is this like a like a strategy that is like well-planned and deliberate or it is just that the nature of your brand where you come from has just got like captured the attention of the media 
Um, I'd say it's a little bit of everything, right? Because one, the idea of a Kenyan running shoe just felt like something that should have happened a long time ago, right? It just, it's resonated with people. So it was a very easy story to tell. We didn't have to convince people that Kenyan athletes are the best. They knew that. And then we initially, actually, when we were starting the Kickstarter campaign, we reached out to media people. They never got back. So I would say the Kickstarter campaign really helped, hence my, my emphasis on once you start getting traction, um, somehow the people who you kind of like reached out to or people who are keen on reporting something, they'll start to reach out. Kickstarter has those kind of people who are always looking for what's trending to kind of like write about. And then the other bit was also um, effort on our part to kind of maintain our press contacts. And anytime we were doing something, kind of send out a press release that, hey, here's what we are up to. And um, that worked. The only thing I'd say from that perspective is I learned that people would usually take it verbatim. So, you know, most reporters wouldn't take it and twist it or, you know, not twist it, like try to tweak it or anything like that. So that gave us the ability to put out what we wanted because after some time we figured out they're not going to change it anyway. Most of them were just kind of like print it and put it up. But it benefited us in early on um, taking stock of everybody who interacted with that is media related and uh, making sure that we cultivated those relationships. So this is a great insight that you brought up. So just to kind of re-emphasize on it, essentially what you're saying is that like everybody who is human uh, mm -hmm. and humans are lazy, so are reporters. Yes. So, so, <laughs> so, so the press releases that you send out, you have a, as a brand, as a new brand, you have actually a lot of um, power, which you don't yes. think you have. Uh, to kind of project your story in the way that you want if yes. it's an effort to like kind of frame your press releases or your media communications well yeah precisely so you frame it in the way that you would want to read it and in the way that sends out the specific message you want someone to listen to most of the time it will go exactly that way pretty cool pretty cool mm. so uh let's like kind of uh move uh, a bit from um, so i remember in the in so like do you still um, sell like uh, other products apart from uh, shoes uh, we do basic t-shirts uh, mm -hmm. and at the, at the pandemic we sold masks but the shoes are essentially our bread and butter Mm -hmm. yeah. so I, I remember like sometime in this last few years i saw that you had you were selling more athletic uh, clothes is it correct or am i mistaken yeah yeah no we were selling but the emphasis is to increase cut value it is not to replace the cut value so we basically just do supplementary product that allows us again this is after doing research and looking at our consumer behavior we realize when we have something cut value goes higher or if we like give you some discount if you do xyz like if you bundle it up uh, people buy more and so what we introduced was some basic apparel i'm using basic because it was not an apparel strategy it was more of a supplemental strategy to increase cut value when we are looking at the product cool so just for our audience like i would like to kind of uh, bring their attention to this uh, concept that you are talking about mm -hmm. so essentially what we've realized is that there are um, seven major things uh, that any brand should focus on as strategies to mm -hmm. improve their profit margins 
and increasing average order value, or as you mentioned, cart value is one of those strategies because yeah. for the same customer acquisition cost that you're bringing customers in, um, you are able to sell more, right? Yes. And, uh, and it's, it's an interesting point that you also bring up because uh, what we see that the top three uh, factors uh, for people to uh, make purchases online are like free shipping, uh, mm-hmm. discounts, and bundles. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, essentially, <laughs> and essentially all three of them, if you think about it, mean that your pricing has to be great. That these are all pricing tactics in a way. Yeah. Like you, you are just using pricing in some or the other way. So, um, so in your experience so far building your brand, like uh, how have you used pricing strategically and how important do you think pricing is? Um, yeah, so pricing is actually a big deal, especially for us, you know, like running shoes on average are going from like 80 to like $250, like on the lower end, uh, midpoint is like about 120, 130. And so it was interesting because when we went to an expo in Europe, um, and we were selling the shoes for hundred dollars, the retailers were all a hundred percent. It's too low. Like. Someone will think it's from Africa. Someone will think it's a charity product. We're not selling shoes at this amount. And if we sell it, it's, you know, they were saying like, you're kind of like denying us an opportunity to make money as well. So that was very interesting. And then going to the US where they were like, no, it's it's okay. Like that price is acceptable for running shoes. And in Kenya, it was like, you are too expensive. Like nobody's going to buy shoes at that amount. So pricing is really important in order to look at you know your market what you want to achieve what are your what's your financial model what you need to uh to get over to either break even or to to make a profit so i'd say pricing is essential but behind pricing there are many you know things you need to consider who's your consumer where are they and so because for us we were in different places we just decided to focus on which is our key market, right? Um, is uh, And are we competitively priced in our key market? We didn't want to variate the price so much in different um, geographies because we figured looking at the history and looking at other brands, a brand that has done price discrimination, you know, it's, it's like a short-lived strategy. People will figure it out, especially now in the age of technology, and they'll try to kind of like do stuff. So we decided to just focus on who our core consumer was and hence also introduce other um, products that would allow someone who's not necessarily able to purchase the key product, but at least have a brand entry point that they can still be affiliated with the, with the, um, the brand. So that's how we decided to kind of like uh, deal with it. Um, in terms of, you know, what it means, um, I think it really depends. So because I'm coming from a different perspective. There are those people who have like a SaaS business, you know, like software as a service. So I'd say for, you know, if you're looking at products that you're actually shipping and uh, bringing in and stuff like that, like pricing is very important, not just for getting the market, but you also have to look at uh, whether that cost is covering things like shipping. Um, Because especially now uh, the customer expectation is like free shipping and free exchanges as many times as possible. So you have to factor in that into your price. And so that's, you know, there's, there tends to be a lot of wastage or a lot of um, costs eating into your margin. So you have to be very careful if you are a product seller. And then um, I think also behind pricing, 
there is uh, you have to understand your customer persona and you also have to understand your value prop. You know, the same way we are selling shoes for like a hundred dollars is the same way Balenciaga has for you know one thousand two hundred dollars. I can tell you for a fact. It's the EVA, which is the sole. The compound is the same. The upper is the same. It's kind of like now the brand kind of like positioning. And so it reaches a point where pricing is really about understanding your customer and understanding the value proposition that they are getting from you. I think if you hit that right, if you know what your customer is looking for and you can offer that, then your pricing might not make sense to the rest of the world, but it makes sense to your customer. And that's perfectly fine. But you can't, most people would go into a market and say, oh, okay, how much is this company selling and this company selling and this company, okay, I should probably sell, probably, you know, in between. That's half of it. I think the other half is what's your value proposition and why is the customer coming for you? If you convince the customer, I do think the customer will pay anything extra. You know, is it customized or not? Is it um, ethical? Is it, you know, there's so many things that make price right. But uh, I would only say pricing strategy is good to compare with a caveat that you have to go back and understand your customer and understand your value prop. Cool. So essentially what you're saying is that, uh, so before even I kind of kind of sub try to summarize this, uh, I had actually another question. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I have observed that like, so you run like, uh, like a, uh, subdomain for Kenya specifically. So are you yes. doing like uh, differential pricing for Kenya and rest of the world? Or is it like the same as you just mentioned? It's the same. It just factors in, uh, it factors, uh, what do you call it? Foreign exchange uh, difference, but it's largely the same price. The reason why we put the different websites is now with relation to regulatory issues where we are looking at taxation and which entity owns, owns which website and which entity is paying tax in which uh, location. So that just allows us to be present in the different jurisdictions. So the US facing website is linked to a US facing bank account, which is linked to the US market. Kenya and the rest of the world is linked to the Kenyan bank account. So it's, it's really just about how we structured the business and management of inventory at our different locations. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so essentially, yes. So, uh, as you mentioned, like uh, Balenciaga and like she said that hey, the material is the same, but they can charge like 120 times what you charge uh, mm -hmm. fundamentally. Uh, so, just to kind of uh, like, so according to you, like as like it's important to understand your customer and what they value. So essentially what you're saying is that uh, to summarize, like brands should focus more on like value-based pricing, like essentially try to understand like what, what customers are valuing you for and, and what they're willing to pay for it. Uh, I would say understanding what you are offering to the customers okay. as opposed to what they value you for. Okay. 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 Mm. Uh, okay. So essentially what, what, what value you're offering and how, okay. That's interesting. That's interesting because uh, what I see is like a lot of brands have this thing, like they, they have a value proposition in their, mm -hmm. on their website, but the customers value them for something very different. Exactly. It's, it's all about the customer. 
yeah, yeah. It's what yeah. You, I can say I'm Superman. If the customer says, ha, 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 you're not, <laughs> I'm probably what the customer says. So yeah. that's why it's um, super important because no matter what you define, like defining yourself is good for identity and setting the strategic vision, but the customer is actually the one who will tell you whether you need to adjust something or you're on point. So on branding, actually, I, I also um, saw your CNN video um, mm -hmm. on the website and an interesting thing like kind of uh, I came across was that you you were saying that when you package your shoes and send, you actually put in Kenyan newspapers. Uh, mm -hmm. So now this is something that I have uh, not seen uh, happening. Um, so, A, do you still do it or is it now that you initially did it? And uh, We're still doing it, but in future as we scale, we are thinking of the feasibility of collecting, you know, newspapers from the rest of the country. So, we're thinking of how to scale it. So, we might create our own newsletters, newspaper in terms of that, because, you know, we, it reached a point where production was, we got, the, the, the team was like, yeah, we're out of newspapers and we had to scramble to find them. Uh, but it's again understanding what the customer is wants to see. For us, we are selling the connection to Kenyan running culture and Kenya as a country, and you know the whole ethos of running together and why running is a joyful communal thing. And so the newspapers we thought would add, uh, hey, here's what's actually happening in another part of the country, um, as opposed to what you're hearing on CNN or BBC. Like it doesn't mean that the news is always positive, but you get like a first-hand account, and you know that was a. Uh, a delight moment for the customer of like, oh my gosh, what is this? I thought it was trash. Oh my gosh, it's a Kenyan newspaper. And that adds to that um, relationship building with the customer where they're like, I really like this. You know, there are a few people who are like, but why? You know, but most people, which is again important to understand your customer, uh, most people really um, kind of like appreciated that. And that's again going back to our value prop is to realize this connect, like yearning to connect to them the Kenyan running culture. And there were ways to do that inexpensively, including putting the newspapers uh, without necessarily having to spend too much money. They were going to the landfill anyway. So um, it's just to think creatively and say, if this is what we're offering our customers, what are the different ways we could offer the customer um, that experience? No, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant because uh, for a few reasons, number one, A, as you said, like uh, they were anyways going to the landfill. So A, it's like reusing paper, which is any yeah. resource. That's awesome. Second thing, I think that is, so for example, at, at our company, like uh, one of the most important things that we value in anything we do, whether we hire people, whether we let people go, whether we, we even we, when we onboard customers, we are constantly kind of uh, understanding like what their empathy levels are and does their empathy level really match us? And empathy means like putting yourself in the other person's shoes. So, exactly. so, yeah. so when you are like kind of uh, selling them, uh, like when you ship that shoe to them, you're actually like literally, like when you put that newspaper in, you are making them like step into the shoes of a Kenyan, right? Like, like exactly. the same, same news that they are reading. So they actually, it's not like an abstract concept, but it's a real thing. Like for example, yeah. when, 
we have any new uh, place that uh, signs up for our, our product. Like one of the things that I do is like, I go on Google Earth and try to see the streets in that city because I've never heard about it. Mm. It kind of mm. helps me like kind of connect to that customer and like, like understand, okay, what, what their day to day is like, where they live, like what it looks like, right? It kind of from that abstract to a real. And I think this is like something that a lot of uh, brands should focus on because everybody has got that one thing why they come into existence, uh, exactly. whether, it is, whether it is a family business, whether it's just that, oh, I'm just a young kid who wants to make some money and I opened the dropshipping website, but still there is a story. And mm-hmm. the story is something that people really don't say. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what we kind of push through. Like, so when somebody like sets up their online store on our platform or, so we have a very important focus on like trying to pushing them to write their story. Uh, yeah. And, like so that because that is the only thing that authentically like and that's the reason why sometimes you kind of uh, realize that i connect with this right so, yeah so so exactly it's, so I in, think, a, in a world of competition you need people to decide why they should buy your product instead of someone else's product and sharing your story is a key reason because someone will feel oh i know that i've been through that feeling you're all connected so it's actually very, very critical for you to share your story. And some entrepreneurs are usually very shy. They, they want to tell, but they don't want to tell their story. But uh, this whole experience has taught me that people support the entrepreneur in as much as they support the business. So the, the more you have the story, the better. And secondly, from a customer acquisition perspective, money can only buy you so much attention, but connection is actually what keeps a customer connected and loyal to your brand. Right. And, and I think I, so there are a lot of these uh, like the management theories and marketing theories around like who your ideal customer is, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But what we strongly believe that eventually it's like, like birds of the same feather talk together. Absolutely. Uh, and that is true for consumers and brands. If, mm-hmm. if people are empathetic about something, which is which is also the brand which the brand is also empathetic about, then they are bound to value you more more than others. It's as simple as yeah. that. And yeah. and for example, like in the case of Enda, like because you are selling, like essentially you're selling this this rite of passage to the place where the most amazing runners come from, mm-hmm. and and you are essentially saying okay when you buy this, you are actually like going towards like that, going through that journey with them is something which kind of, if it resonates with someone, they are surely going to be fans forever. And, yeah. and, and that is something to be able to like, kind of explain that easily to people. Uh, I think your newspaper example was like, like just brilliant. Like, I mean, a uh, big fan of that. Uh, please find <laughs> those two please find ways to continue to keep doing it. <laughs> we are trying, we're trying our best yeah. to keep that going. Yeah, awesome. I think uh, one other thing that we like really like to talk about a lot internally mm-hmm. and uh, we like to hear people's opinions about this is um, typically what happens is like, like there are many ways to like kind of uh, be successful. Like every mm-hmm. success story has their own ways, uh, but surely there are things that people shouldn't do. So what, according to your top three mistakes, like going direct to consumer, like Enda, uh, like what people usually make, uh, which are sure fire, sure short uh, recipes of like, failure. 
Um, yeah, so I, I can say the first one is outsourcing without understanding. So a lot of business owners assume that digital marketing is this very complicated world where there's too many algorithms or, you know, and there's no shortage of people to tell you that, oh, like, like they'll talk in language that you don't understand. And I say that because I didn't have any background into digital marketing and I had to learn it the hard way. But I also learned it because, you know, someone can tell you, I have set up your ad, I have done all these things, I have, you know, but, you know, there are instances where I found someone had said that they, they have done something, but they didn't do it. But because they knew that I didn't have the knowledge to to check, you know, they, it was like um, paying them for nothing, you know. And so one of these things is that, especially with uh, YouTube, uh, Google as well, there are so many tutorials that you don't have to do the actual um, you know, work behind the, create, the creation of the things, but you can actually check on the dashboard and see what's been done, what's not been done. Google has fantastic tracking mechanisms into Meta, and you can be able to see that. And so the first thing I would say is, you know, D2C businesses is not restricted to people who are tech specific. You can still run your own direct consumer, but you should be able to at least know what you're paying someone for and be able to verify that that's um, kind of being done. So don't outsource without understanding. Make sure you understand that when someone is doing the job, you can verify that they've done it. The other big mistake I'd say is relying on paid um, advertising, uh, usually PPC, and relying on that as a means of building your customer base. It will get people through the door, it will not keep them, which is what we were talking about uh, in terms of, you know, just keeping, um, getting customers to be loyal. And so, first of all, it's expensive and it's going to get expensive because, you know, that's just, if you look at the trends, uh, pay-per-click has been going up. And sometimes the algorithms change. You kind of think you figured out your audience and then they do something and then all of a sudden you're, you're not reaching as many people as you thought. And so customer, you know, like building a customer community, especially through, for us, what has worked a lot is mailing lists. Uh, that is where you really cultivate. So don't just settle um, on, you know, pay-per-click without thinking about what do I do with those customers once they're in the door. It's now your job to convert them. If they come in, they browse your store, they don't like what they see, they've gone, you know, and that's the end of it. But if you kind of like engage them, get their contacts, make sure that, you know, tell them there's something new coming up, give me your email, I'll be able to do X, Y, Z, like that actually makes a thing. And then you also have to find a way to engage them outside that first interaction. This could be through physical events, depending on which product you're in for, but you have to think about what's the hook for customer loyalty, even after. So I'd say pay-per-click is an initial tactic, but it should not be the sustaining tactic. And the last one I'd say is if there's no ROI, don't do it. Um, digital marketing, I'd say, is the place I call it the Wild West because there's everybody is a digital expert nowadays. And so everybody will come to tell you, I can do this for you. I can do that for you. I can do that for you. And if you're a small business that you're, you're really stuck in a trouble and I think, oh, this person might save me. Um, I would say, you know, first, there are no saviors. Everybody's in the business of making money. And secondly, if there is no ROI, just don't do it. Someone, any project has to be very clear in terms of you're either getting money if you're not getting money back, you're getting awareness and you have to know the difference so that you're not just doing something because someone thought it was cool 
or someone is experimenting on your dime or whatever, but you just have to make sure that you as a business understand that ROI, set that ROI, and the person delivers based on that ROI. And if possible, the payment is based on um, achievement of those uh, KPIs that were set. Because I felt, I feel like, again, in this industry, there's no guarantees. Everybody is trying to figure out some stuff, you know. And every, you know, today it's AI, tomorrow might be something else. There's no guarantees. People are trying to figure it out. But if you get into a thing where they don't know if they can deliver, you don't know if they can deliver, it just sounds like a bad idea. So my personal mantra is if there is no ROI, I'm not doing it. I'd say those are the key three things. Wow. So, uh, so it's, it's actually uh, it's very, uh, okay. So anyways, because these are the things, this is the journey that, I also went through like when we started a brand like yeah. <laughs> you make these same mistakes when you're trying to sell online uh, mm. uh, but like just for like our audience like I would like to kind of uh, summarize what you just said so number one is like don't outsource uh, without understanding um, yes. although everything may be difficult to understand and you may not know everything but it is important to at least know what you're outsourcing right exactly um, and then like kind of what you said in as the third point, I will just like kind of bring it up a bit because you say like if there is no ROI, don't do it. So once you have that understanding and you can decide if there is an ROI on doing it, then only do it, which is also true. But I think I would like to kind of even more stress on that third point of like uh, paid marketing, like ads, running ads on Google, uh, Meta, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever. I think this is something that uh, people overly like so people actually um essentially it goes back to your initial point like people are lazy okay. i i personally feel that uh, it is a very lazy form of marketing <laughs> because mm -hmm. because what people want is a quick fix okay i'm going to run these ads somebody's going to set this up for me and then i this is going to be just like a tap you know like yeah. what is coming always i'm going to put in like a dollars a month and i'm going to get my my issues are going to be sold through the door which never happens right like no. um and so for example for us like at conigal we do zero paid marketing uh, mm, that's fantastic yeah, you know? is organic uh, all mm -hmm. our signups are organic everybody comes up and discovers it's organic yes it took time uh, it took time to kind of figure this out, um, but once it did, then it's it, it's actually something where it is important, and it's just not important in the terms that you save money. I think what is even more important is what you said that, and this is firmly what we believe that. So, for example, we have stats. So we did a study of over 1.5 million online stores selling like mm -hmm. products, and what we realized is that less than 20% people actually place a second order on average on any online store mm -hmm. and any person placing less than 0.2 percent people actually place a 10th order oh wow yeah just imagine and this is true across brands like brands doing very well brands starting out brands in the middle it doesn't matter and what happens is that if you kind of do like content driven or product-led seo or you like focus on content or you like promote your story or you talk about why you exist more about the why rather than what. Uh, what mm. happens is that people end up coming in who are convinced that this is the product for them. Exactly. And, and, and they are more tolerant, tolerant towards like 
flaws in your product which will be exactly. there exactly <laughs> then they end up supporting you through the journey with multiple purchases and they almost always have higher customer lifetime value in fact uh, as one of the tactics uh, uh, that we have automated on our uh, storefront is like anybody who places a first order they actually get a discount coupon for the second purchase because mm. what we seen is that if somebody places a second order their lifetime value actually increases by 4x exactly and this is something that doesn't so if you can get them to like take come in because they truly believe and understand why you exist this is a very high likelihood that the conversion rate will be higher their order values will be higher and lifetime value over the period longer time period will be much higher so yeah absolutely you've hit the nail on the head with this because this is something that we see all the time people just like keep making the same mistakes uh yeah quite quite, quite amazing one other thing that i i think is something that we we also kind of think a lot about uh is so you've actually built a brand like i mean like like for example we we or uh, at conigal people really don't know about us until they discover some content and then they find us as a solution but mm-hmm. that is a brand like i i see like most of your estimated uh, organic visitors on your website are because people are looking for an industry yeah so, so so you are the expert here um so what do you think is the biggest myth around brand building um i would say and again i'm speaking from a d2c perspective hmm. is that digital like again kind of like paid advertising the more you pump into it the more people know about you the more you build a brand basically it's looking at branding as attention and engagement and what's this other term we like using reach i think it's reach it's, it's, so it's more like but it's all predicated on more money equals bigger brand that is not true um and it goes back to what we have what you just talked the why and how you get people to know the why and taking charge of communicating that why right so whether it's in the newsletter whether it's in blog posts whether it's in partnerships whether it's in um media appearances that why has to be there constantly and kind of like being hammered and so for us as i said we started with kickstarter because we didn't have money and you know a lot of our journey has been bootstrapping and and building throughout throughout and i think there are businesses that have been more better funded uh better positioned and haven't managed to do what we've done and so and say that myth is equals money equals bigger brand so that's digital uh more paper clicks equals to bigger brand i would say it is really about uh going back to the customer proposition what you're offering the customer and really nailing it down in different ways you know um you know we always look at um the five senses of the human being you know like seeing there's hearing about it there's uh touching it okay we're not food so it's not tasting it but it's creating different touch points where people can be able to see but most of all they will be able to connect with it because they know the why um we've been pretty solid with our mailing list and getting people like most of our email of our 
digital campaigns have been about getting people on the mailing list. And the reason why we do that is we realize there's much more engagement in the inbox than there is on any ad. You know, inbox is personal, they'll click, they'll open, they'll tell you whether they like it or not. If they won't, they won't click it and, you know, and stuff like that. And so I've learned that and a simple email list and communicating to people is essentially what builds a strong brand. And that goes back to our Kickstarter days. You know, we thought it would make products in six months. It ended up being one year. So that honest process of communicating and saying, guys, we really messed up with this one, but here's what we're trying to do. Or here's where this product is. We've really tried, but you know, this is what's happening. Or hey, here's a fantastic thing uh, we got mentioned on CNN. And what that, that communication has basically, it allowed our customers to tell their friends about us, even though we were not necessarily the ones telling them about us. And what I've learned is that when you have user-generated content, user-generated information, user-generated sharing, that's all you need, right? That, that's, that's basically the secret. You need someone else to be excited enough to tell their friend about it or to like mention, oh, you know, this thing exists or something like that. And that has translated into how we communicate to our customers and being very open so that we are not necessarily presenting a polished front but we're mm -hmm. presenting um, an, an entrepreneurial journey. And quite honestly, what we forget to our customers and as much as we want to offer them perfection is that they're human beings. They're not perfect. They screw up just as we screw up. And there's that connection of, oh, this and this happening. Of course, you might have some customers who are not too happy, but I found that that connection and creating stories and things that you might think are not relevant those are the things that actually make your business grow. You just want to make sure that people are talking about you. Going back to my first point, you can pay for them to come to your business, but you can't pay for them to tell their friends about it. And they'll only tell their friends about it if they feel connected. They will only feel connected if they're part of your triumphs and part of your failures. And so mailing lists, I actually see them as a conversation point, not just a buy me, buy this, buy that. It's a conversation. And if you take that approach, um, I feel like for us, that was very fundamental in building the brand. Cool, cool, cool. I think, yeah, it's like, this is something which, which is really true. Um, and I think uh, what we've also seen across our customer base, only two kinds of like communication with the customers actually work. One is, okay, we are doing this promotion. Here mm -hmm. is the price you could buy. That's it. Or the other yeah. part is what you just said that you walk them through the journey and like, you know, like kind of make them part of your journey. Essentially, you're, you're like, like being like, basically, it's like, it's like you're, you're telling them like, okay, this is what happened today. This is what happened. Yeah. Today. It's a happened. diary and <laughs> they write back. That's the amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. And sorry, one last thing with the newsletter is also there's ways to do it where it actually seems like an email as opposed to something manufactured. So these are now all the things that come together to feel like I'm talking to you, even though the email might be going to Chuan, but it's actually, I feel like I'm talking to Jatin and that makes the whole difference. Awesome. So personalization in your email marketing communications is like uh, another important uh, yeah. aspect. Awesome. So like, actually there is like a uh, couple of questions that I had uh, before mm -hmm. we like, kind of wrap up. Uh, so you, you're selling like shoes 
um, uh, I always struggle, like, for example, for me, like, I kind of struggle with my shoe sizes all the time, like, and then it's like a back and forth. Many times I return shoes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this, this kind of building, building like a, like an apparel brand or like, like a shoe brand is, is difficult in terms of like, you have all these return rates and that mm -hmm. kind of comes up into your margins. Um, so what have you done differently or are you like, what, what are you trying to do to like kind of solve this problem or you just said, okay, we just bite the bullet. It is what it is. Um, we do a couple of things. One for us, at least we do, uh, we do now returns and exchanges. I think it's twice before it was unlimited, but it is like, it's not sustainable. So now we limit it to, I think twice and within 30 days. Um, so we do that to just nudge the customer to try. Um, as we said, you know, it's not a one tactic strategy. The longer strategy is to get you in our mailing list and to get you to be able to communicate with you. And so we look at that initial entry point as what does it take to get this person to committed enough to go further down the funnel as a committed customer. We will give you the uh, pricing in terms of uh, you know, if you first sign in, you get a 10% off. And then if you kind of like try and it doesn't fit you 30 day guarantee money back or we do that exchange. But at the same time, we are also looking at the LT long term um, value of the customer and basically say, we know that even if we incur a certain cost, uh, past that cost, we actually stand to benefit more from this customer coming in from that time. So it's just to clarify that it's not just a random cost that we say, oh, this is a cost we're going to take as a company to get this person in. It is part of a, you know, a wider strategy in terms of getting them inside. And then secondly is to provide like a shoe size guide where as much as possible, we are able to uh, give you estimate of what the shoe and the fitting looks like. And then also just having a reliable customer service that can answer people's questions immediately because at the end of the day, people just want to feel like I have this question. Can I talk to someone or can I have someone? And that also helps answer people's questions and get them to purchase um, quicker. And again, making sure that the refund process is easy so that someone doesn't feel like they're going to jump hoops just to get their money back. Some businesses will do some tactics where it's virtually impossible <laughs> to get your money back. Um, but as I said, for us, the longer play is a community of customers that are part of our journey. And so we try to model behavior of a friend. And that, I think, um, gets respect from a customer perspective and also makes life easier for us. Cool, cool, cool. So offering like a size guide and also kind of making sure that before they buy, they've already like you've, you've covered all bases, like you've got good customer support to answer the queries, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Another thing like, so we hear this all the time and we kind of uh, see that like a lot of people say that your first purchase is like your least profitable. So essentially your first customer, like the whatever the first uh, product they buy, you make the least amount of money as a brand from mm -hmm. them. To the point where somebody cares, some brands who have like kind of raised a lot of venture capital money they, they mm -hmm. like say like even losing money is fine. Uh, so uh, what are your thoughts around this? Uh, and how do, how do you see this attenda, right? Do you, do you like kind of are okay to like sell it at no profit, no loss, you know, the first purchase or you basically just like say no, 
unit economics every purchase should get me at least this much money yeah i think at the end of the day you have to remember you're running a business it's really about your strategy right because there's some strategy especially if you have lots of runway you can play that game because you have enough money to get to the point where the customer comes to buy a higher order value um but i think for smaller businesses it's a dangerous game mostly because of cash flow issues and because you know especially i would say don't do it on debt absolutely not um it's it's one of those things that i really had for smaller customers so i would say try to make sure you're getting your margin uh if it means putting a roof over your head and paying your people i'd say that's definitely a strategy if your company can absorb that cost as part of a longer strategy i'm like there's nothing wrong with that as long as you get people on board but the key thing i think in terms of the only challenge uh, i pose to people when they're looking at a long-term role is that if you set a company culture where waste is acceptable it's a very slippery slope extremely slippery because anyone can justify why a certain project or product should be exercised because you know it's going to make money in future and that goes back to my ROI point where I'm like, if you cannot show me the ROI, even if it's that future point, let's not talk about the future. Tell me in 15 months, quantify it in 12 months in Excel, so that there is a level of responsibility to the team that's executing. And there's also an attachment of respect to the resources that are going to be put towards this effort. So smaller businesses, I say, no, don't try to lose money upfront. Just make sure you're covering bases bigger businesses you can do it with a caveat of there is you have to have very tight guardrails otherwise you'll create a culture of waste yeah so that's a that's a, that's a great point that you should not kind of like inadvertently propagate a culture of waste in the company by saying like selling at loss is fine the roi is king essentially no you tell me when the loss is going to end and when you're going to start flipping the money and how we're going to recoup that money. I'm so, but if you're just speculating that this is, no, they'll just move on to the next job and you'll be left with all these costs. Awesome. And they're like, why do we do that? So it's, it's a very slippery slope, in my opinion. Awesome. So, yeah, this is the final question. Like, um, so now you've like kind of, been building end up for like, like 2015 like it's like eight years uh, mm -hmm. um, so you must have seen like e-commerce change a lot like commerce in general change a lot uh, mm -hmm. things coming and going so how do you see this whole entire e-commerce offline commerce brand building like ecosystem like evolving in the next three to five years um i think this will be for the benefit of digital companies. I mean, D2C companies is that there's going to be market optimization in terms of data. So right now we are seeing tech getting more sophisticated, uh, multiple data coming from multiple sources. So I think with this will come better insights and better analysis that uh, will help, uh, you know, forming strategic decisions for marketing. So the first thing I see is total market optimization, which I think will reduce costs of uh, digital marketing. I hope so, because I'm thinking, you know, with the idea that there's more efficiency, uh, costs will go lower because, you know, anyone, I'm hoping that, you know, those insights won't just be limited to bigger companies. Um, so I think marketing will get, will definitely get better because we'll have better insights. 
Um, I also see a desire for end-to-end -end visibility, um, and this applies to both businesses as well as customers. Uh, the world has basically shrunk with regard to a digital outlook, and people are not just going to be buying products. Um, I feel like especially with this generation and the future of consumerism, visibility is going to be key and technology is definitely offering that visibility so marketing that poses a, ch a challenge to your marketing your honesty your virtue your you know what values are the companies kind of putting out so i do see businesses being held to a more stand a higher standard of um the virtues that they hold and that visibility will be not just from the business side as i said but also from our supplier side where are you getting your stuff from? Um, can it be traced? Who's kind of like putting it out there? So that visibility is definitely going to get better and it will be good or bad depending on where your business is. But I would say, you know, positioning your brand to stand for something, to mean something. Um, I'd say ethical businesses that are practicing ethical practices are more likely to last in the future. And finally, I think there'll be more customizations. Uh, again, looking at AI and looking at the possibility of what it can do for, you know, customized experiences. Um, I think it'll be hyper, uh, it's like going to be on steroids in terms of what can be personalized. This is from an ads perspective and also from a consumer perspective in terms of what you want. Uh, to be able, what you want from a particular product, like AI can be able to personalize something in a way that wasn't possible before. So I, I overall, I see it as um, benefit in terms of, it just depends on which side your business is. So it's, it's really important to be looking at the, to be looking at the landscape and seeing what, you know, where's the market going and where do you need to be? Because I foresee a lot of change. And of course, the businesses that survive are the ones that see the change and adapt before they're forced to change. Awesome, awesome. So just a, like a personal question. So sure. when, when, when does, when does, uh, when can I like kind of uh, customize my own Enda shoe? That will take some time. It will take some time. We're not, we're not, maybe, maybe from 2025, maybe from 2025. Like right now, we're still working on scaling and building economies of scale. Uh, but I've seen technology that is making personalization, you know, very affordable and reachable. It wasn't like before where you can only get it in some special lab. Um, the technology is coming, which is why I say even for for product-based products, I think the possibility of personalizing good quality and not just screen printing, you know, I'm talking about like real personalization with uh, if it's embroidered, like something lasting, um, I think that technology is also not too far. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your time. Uh, no worries. Lots so of... It was a great chat.